0: Peter chapter 1, and we'll look together at verses 1 through 4, and our focus will be on verse 3. Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Well, again, I've already mentioned how I, how much I am taken up with that phrase "partakers of the divine nature." As I said before, I'm convinced that that's really the emphasis that Peter is making at this point. But we come back to verse three now. And in verse 3, what we see is Peter is emphasizing the means by which we are made partakers of the divine nature. And what I want to show you in this third verse is essentially this. That in the work of Christ in the gospel, what is essentially happening is this. Is that there is being communicated to the people of God this divine power, which makes us one with our Savior Jesus Christ. That there is in the gospel of Jesus Christ this divine reality whereby you can say, To yourself, to an unbelieving world, to an accusing devil, that you are his and he is yours. You are Christ and Christ is yours. No matter what the world tells you, no matter what Satan may say to you, no matter what your circumstances speak to you, this is divine truth. And it is bought, if I can put it this way, by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. And so again, what I hope to do is to set this reality before you. Again, everything necessary... Everything necessary for the Christian life is found in the knowledge of God in Christ and communicated to us by his spirit and by his word. Everything necessary for the Christian life. Well, I don't know if you've ever given a thought to the idea of the value of the Christian life. And I guess as I begin to open up a passage of scripture that speaks to you about everything necessary for the Christian life being found in the knowledge of God... I don't know if you've ever considered the value of your Christian faith, the value of your Christian life. Your Christian faith is a very precious thing, you know. The fact that God has given to you this, again, this deposit of faith. And through that deposit of faith, he has joined you to Jesus Christ. You live in a world where in many times your faith is challenged. Yet in many ways you have found your faith sufficient and more than sufficient for the circumstances. You found yourself sometimes pressed down. You found yourself sometimes up against it, we might say. And yet, what was it that carried you through? Well, ultimately, it was God Himself. But as we get particularly, we can see it was God Himself through His Spirit working in you. God Himself by making Christ precious to you. God Himself communicating all these things to you through the Spirit of God. But received by faith, oh, the blessedness of a Christian life. And so I appeal to you this morning, even before I begin to explain uh, what the scripture says here, by by way of having everything necessary for this Christian life, I appeal to you on the basis of the beauty and the wonder and the preciousness of the Christian life. You see, this is why you say to your friends, this is why you pray for your children, that they might come to know this Christian life. That they might come to know not merely a religious life, but a life that is founded and rested upon Jesus Christ that there would be not only religious devotion, but there would be personal devotion to this one Jesus Christ. And so again, this wonderful thing that we know of as the Christian life. And what does Peter say? Everything necessary. We see here in verse 3. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that is called us glory and virtue. Well, what I want to do today as we look at this passage of scripture, I want to treat it along three lines. Number one, I want you to see first and foremost that the power that is in this passage of Scripture, the power that this passage of Scripture speaks of, is a divine power. This is the source. When when Peter says here that we have all things that pertain unto life and the godliness, you have to understand that he is finding the, the power source, we might say, in the divine nature of Christ himself. Kind of interesting, when we look at the passage of Scripture, there's a question when Peter opens up verse 3, according as is divine power, the question is, is that a reference to the divine power of God the Father, which would be certainly understandable, or or is it a reference to the divine power of Jesus Christ? My understanding is, is that it is, a, it, is a divi- it is a reference to the divine power of Jesus Christ. It is an extension of that truth that we've seen in verse 2 where Peter refers to Jesus Christ as God, our Savior. One of the things that we see in the second epistle of Peter is Peter is engaging what the theologians call a very high Christology. And what they mean by this expression of high Christology is that you see Jesus Christ in all of his majestic glory, That there is no pulling back on the nature of the person of Jesus Christ. But this one whom God has sent forth, this one who your faith is in, is majestic in every sense of the word. He is exalted. He is, again, that one in whom all of our salvation and all of our hopes rest. And so when Peter says here that this, this divine provision is given to us, this divine provision would be a reference back to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting because as you kind of engage this question, one of the things that you have to deal with is, is along these lines. That l- Let's say, and again, commentators do say, some commentators say that this is a reference to God the Father. This is a, a reference to the Father's kind of majesty here. But what's very interesting here is this, is that even if that is the case, and there would be no problem if there was, even if that is a, the case, what we find is that there is such an ease Of going back and forth between the Father and the Son in Peter's writings, that once again we are moved to this conviction that Peter sees in the Lord Jesus Christ not merely a good man. And I have to say this, I think you've heard me say this before, the congregation, that in salvation, God did not merely raise up a good man to save you, He sent down His Son from heaven to save you. This is phenomenal. And this is what again we see here. It's according to His divine power. The Lord Jesus Christ before His resurrection, all power is given unto me. And that power has come to bear for your salvation. And so the first point that we'll look at again is that this power uh, by which we have all things uh, 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 pertaining to life and the godliness is a divine power. The second thing I want you to do, that we'll take a look at is the provision itself. And if you notice here, it is, a, it is a comprehensive provision, isn't it? It's all things necessary for life in the godliness. That whatever you encounter in this life, there is grace sufficient for it. I think of passages of scripture that remind us of the manifold grace of God. You know, there we need manifold grace, don't we? Because we have manifold troubles. We got a ton of troubles, but there's, there's much more grace uh, that's available there. Whatever your troubles may be, there is grace sufficient for that situation. And so we're going to take a look at the comprehensiveness of the supply the source of the supply is divine and the compreh- and, and, and it is uh, comprehensive in its supply but the third thing we're going to take a look at in this passage of scripture is that all things that are necessary to, to life in the godliness are always to lead to piety and purity in the people of God. This is an important emphasis that, that we have to make. And, and I have to admit, it's, a, it's an emphasis that, that I try to make whenever I can. You have to pray. We have to pray for one another that it would not just be an emphasis that we make publicly, but that it would be a conviction that we hold personally, personal piety and holiness and impurity. Again, that idea that we are living in this world as God has called us to live. <clears throat> But where we see that in the passage of Scripture, again, is in the third verse itself. Notice what uh, what Peter says here. He says, Through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. And then go down to verse 4, the last part of verse 4, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And so what we see is that that divine power that's exerted on your behalf, that provision which is comprehensive in and of itself, has as its effect in the life piety and purity. Stop and think of that, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You know, in the second chapter of this second epistle, Peter will emphasize that one of the things that false teachers do is that they never free themselves from the corruption that is in this world. One of the things that false teachers do is they use the things of religion to advance themselves in the corruption of this world. It's It's a very sad thing to see. But we see it around us in our day, do we not? That for many, godliness is not piety, but godliness is materialism. And again, I'm not saying anything against the blessings that God may give by way of material blessings. Again, may God bless you abundantly in material blessings. But may you never have material blessings as the end of your religion. And so again, Peter will bring these things out. So again, the outline that we're going to see here is that divine power is the source comprehensive uh, comprehensive provision is the supply and personal piety and purity is the effect. And this is all, again, coming off of our primary doctrine or proposition, which is this. Everything needed for the Christian life is found in the knowledge of God in Christ and communicated to us by His Spirit and by His Word. Now, let me say this, first of all, as we get to the first point, that we are confident of this doctrine because divine power is its source. We are confident that we have everything that we need for life and godliness, because divine power is its source. Now, as I said before, this uh, divine power, I believe, uh, unmistakably, is a is a reference to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can see how someone asked the question, well, really, who does, this, who does this divine power spring from? Does it spring from God the Father, or does it spring from our Lord Jesus Christ? And as I said before, in one sense, the emphasis... It doesn't make much of a difference. But I do want to emphasize that I believe that it is focusing on the person of Christ because I think it's right and proper at every time, every chance that we get to exalt the person of Christ, to give unto him the glory due his name. And so he comes to us again as God incarnate, and it is as God incarnate that he is bringing about our salvation. But this idea of power, divine power, is exercised on our behalf in order that we might have all things necessary for salvation. You know, power is one of the great theme words of the gospel. We read this morning from, uh, from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God in the salvation. And I, it's amazing how many times we find the gospel exhibited in terms of power. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is because the power that the gospel overcomes, the power that the gospel destroys is the power of sin. And if you know anything about yourself, you don't even have to know much about sin. But if you know anything about yourself, you know that sin is a power. Sin is a drawing power. Sin is an attracting power. Sin is a conforming power. I don't see many young people, no young people here today, but I intended to say to young people, oh young people, learn while you're young to say no to the allurement of sin. And I say it that way to young people because we as old people know the power of sin when it is not rejected at an early age. My wife had a, a rose uh, bush uh, planted in front of our house a couple years ago. And we had to put a little trellis there to, to kind of get the rose to grow you know, straight up. Well, it kind of broke away. for It kind of didn't really go up along with the trellis. Now the rose bush is growing and it's starting to grow into our walkway. And I was going to put it back on the trellis but the, it's so thick on the bottom, it would pull the trellis over. A beautiful picture for an ugly reality. The beautiful picture of a rose, the ugly reality of the conforming power of sin. It was pulling away. If I tried to pull it up to the trellis, what would it do? It would pull the trellis down. And so the, so the urge, again, to the young would have been, oh, learn in an early age to say yes to the word of God, yes to the movement of the Spirit. But for those of us in older age, when we see the, 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 the little uh, uh, thorn, uh, the, excuse me, the little uh, branch of the rose uh, grow thick, for those of us in an older age, let's not forget that the power we're talking about is the power of the gospel. The power we're talking about is a divine power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power by which we live unto a holy life. Aren't you glad that, again, one of the major themes of the Bible is power? And the reason why one of the major themes of the gospel is power. Because sin is a power unto death. That wonderful passage in Romans chapter 6. The whole idea. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwell in you. Oh, you see. You see. Have you ever considered the thought. Does death have any more power over Jesus Christ? As, as Jesus Christ is exalted at the right hand of the Father. Can death be? To use a kind of a picture, if you allow me, can death reach up and grab his ankle and pull him back down? Death can't do that. Death was destroyed. And the point that Paul was making in Romans six is the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power whereby we live on the holiness of life. And the application is this: sin has the same compelling power over you and me right now that death has over Jesus Christ. I say, wait a minute. Death doesn't have any power over Jesus Christ. Neither does sin have compelling power over you or me. It has tempting power. It has alluring power. But it has no compelling power. It cannot take you by the the force of its own authority and drag you away. Why? Because in the gospel, the power of sin has been broken. You see, divine provision has been made. And that divine provision is the provision of Jesus Christ himself. And there he was in, the per, in his own person, taking on the full weight and wrath of sin, bearing with the whole power of sin and coming victorious over it, to where at the end of the day, Jesus Christ is able to say, and we are able to join in, the, in this chorus, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? You know that's you know that's a taunt? That's a taunt. Jesus Christ, the Christian says, "Death, where's your sting? Death, where are you at?" I can go on and on about you know the kind of taunt, but but I'll I'll, I'll keep some decorum here. But uh, again, this is the idea: the power of sin is a, is a broken power, and there is again in this divine provision that Jesus Christ has made for us that all things necessary again, are given to us through the knowledge. Everything necessary for uh, life and godliness are given unto us. Well, again, so this is the first thing. And this is why, as I said before, this is why we have this confidence in the doctrine that we've set forth, that everything necessary for the Christian life is given to us through a knowledge of Him that called us. The second thing I want you to see here by way of our outline is this. We are confident in this doctrine, not only because there is divine power as its source, but we are confident in this doctrine because there is a comprehensive supply. Did you notice what Peter says? He hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and the godliness. All things. You know, some of, some of the things that are included in all things are, are, are very unique things. Unique to each and every one of us. The this part of the all things that, that I need to, 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 to experience the fullness of salvation may be somewhat different than the all things that you need. And, and some of the all things that you need would, would be a little different to me. But I'm telling you, all things, no matter how unique they may be, no matter how common they may be, all things are supplied for us through this knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, what we're seeing here is the comprehensiveness of the supply of God in the work of salvation, that there is no point or no place where the Christian finds himself deficient. There is no point in the spiritual life and in the development of that spiritual life where the Christian labors under some lack of supply. Grace is there for every situation and every circumstance. And, and if I can say it this way, oftentimes, oftentimes we don't we don't make use of that grace that is supplied. Sometimes because Sometimes because we don't know where to put our hands on it. What do I mean by that? Well, the comprehensive supply is in the Word of God. Is given unto us, again, through divine power. All things necessary for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. This knowledge is in His Word. It's communicated by the Spirit of God. It's in the Word of God. The Word of God objectively as we have it in Scripture. The Word of God subjectively applied to our souls by the Spirit of God. All things are there. But oftentimes there are things in the scripture that we don't know are there. I hate to put it this way. It's kind of like when we're looking for things and maybe our tool shed or maybe our work truck is, is, is kind of like a mess. And we know what we need is in there. But because it's such a mess, we just can't find it. And we know it's there. We spend all this time looking for it. And what I'm saying to you is this. Everything that we need for life and godliness is in the word of God. Is our life ordered well enough? Is our life structured well enough to know where in the word of God we can find that divine provision that we need? In that promise, rest upon that promise. And in that promise, find God to be faithful again and again and again and again. You see, everything needed is here in the word of God. Oftentimes we must take the effort to make sure that we know how to find it, that our lives are ordered in such a way as to not make it more difficult to receive the things that God has for us there in his word. But again, the promise here is is just a wonderful promise. And the other thing that we see here in this provision, the provision is is emphasizing the the graciousness of the provision. And again, this has been a repeated theme even very early in this epistle. One of the things you remember that we said, if, if you go back to verse 1, Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have, have obtained like precious faith. The word obtain, you remember, means to, it means to receive. It means to be the beneficiary of. And it, it is emphasizing the gracious nature of salvation, even the gracious nature of the gift of faith. Now, faith is a very wonderful thing in, in very many ways because in one sense there is nothing so personal as faith, is there? you know it's faith it's that which seems to bubble up within you it seems it's that which seems to carry you through but when it's all said and done whatever faith is by way of a human exertion or human exercise faith is ultimately the gift of god so that we might say something like this about faith faith as to its origin is the gift of god faith in its exercise is an activity of man And so, what we see happening here is that the scripture is emphasizing this idea of the graciousness of the work of God. What's the same thing here? Notice what Peter says here in verse 3: According as his divine power hath given unto us. The word here, given, means to bestow, it means to give. It's that whole idea, we can't say it any any clearer than that: To, to give, to give freely. And what's interesting is that in the verbal structure of the word, it's a perfect passive, which means that that which has been given in the past has ongoing effects into the future. So that whatever God has given us by way of divine power was not just divine power back then. And some of us look at our Christian lives that way, don't we? Oh, I remember when I first got saved, I was so in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard these things, right? Oh, you know, this time has gone on and things have gone. No, listen, the same bestowal of the gifts of grace. Although they may have been given in the past, they have ongoing affection to the future. And that's what Peter is emphasizing here. He can't get away from the majestic nature of Jesus Christ. He can't get away from the gracious nature of Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus Christ and it's all about the grace that he gives. And so what we're seeing here is, 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 that this, is that this comprehensive provision, all things, is a gracious provision. It's a blessed provision. It's a, provision. it's a provision that is here for you and me today. My brothers and sisters, again, are we making use of that provision? Are we, are we engaging in the provision that our Lord Jesus Christ has given to us? And so again, we have everything by way of its comprehensive supply. And so this is what the provision of God is for us. Now, the other thing that we see here is that this provision is found in him that called us. Now, again, this is another kind of interesting thing that we have to deal with with the text. When the passage of Scripture says, again, let's take a look at verse three here, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and the godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us. And the question is, who is it that's called us? Well, theologically, most oftentimes, whenever we talk about calling and calling is a a, a category of Christian doctrine uh, that comes under the under under the major heading of salvation in salvation, there is the calling in salvation there is justification, salvation, there is sanctification and glorification, there is election, all these things. Well, well calling in one sense is a, is a formal head of doctrine. And usually when we consider calling as a Christian uh, doctrine, we usually attribute it to the Father because of passages such as this. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians nine, God is faithful by whom you were called under the fellowship of His Son. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you into His kingdom and glory. 1 Peter chapter 5 but the uh, chapter 5 verse 10 but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus and so what we see here is that normally whenever we consider the word calling it is referencing an activity of the father but when we come into the gospel itself and when we read the gospels one of the things that we see about the person of our blessed savior is that he is that one who calls sinners to himself this, this is, again, this is, a very, this is very appealing to us as, as individual persons. You know, the idea of God the Father calling theologically may appeal to our minds by way of uh, the beauty of theology and the wonder of theology. But here is now the person of Jesus Christ personally calling sinners. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? You remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said. I, I come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's your Savior, you know, let a man come to, to Jesus Christ feeling that he is righteous and sufficient in himself. Now, Christ is not issuing no call to that man. But let a man find himself as one who is under the burden of sin. Let a man find himself as the one who, who is justly under the condemnation of God. Let a man cry out to God, "Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the one Jesus Christ is calling you know, we've all had our friends say, well, I don't want to go to church. They say it jokingly, you know, I, I can't go to church. I go to church, the roof will fall down on me. That's the, kind, that's, that's, the, that's the exact person Jesus Christ is looking for. You call those kind of people to church because those are the ones that Jesus Christ is saving. He's not saving the righteous. He's calling sinners to himself. And so again, whether we see this call in this passage of Scripture as referencing the Father and the more formal theological aspect of the Word, whether we see it as a calling of the Son and the more personal aspect of the appeal of the Gospel, I think we can interact with both of these ideas. But what we're seeing here, once again, is that the sufficiency that God has given to us in salvation is all bound up where? Where is is the comprehensive provision? It's in the knowledge of Him who called us. And again, I have to say once again that this, I think that this revolves eventually back onto the person of Jesus Christ. That it's the knowledge of him who called us. Knowledge is another one of these words that that the gospel writers can't get away from. The Lord Jesus Christ prays, and what does he say? Father, give unto them eternal life, and this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God. Matthew chapter seven, Jesus warns in a very stern way, those who would be very religious. He doesn't say this to the atheists, and to the unbelievers, but to the religious. He says, what does he say? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. What is this thing of knowledge that we see? We've seen it already here in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse uh, 2. Notice what we have here. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace multiplied." You remember I used kind of that, uh, that, that phrase and as I think about it, I, I hope it's not uh, a, a phrase that uh, was, uh, was, was misapplied to the passage, but, but I think it is uh, applicable to the passage. That, that the knowledge of God is a, is, a, is, a, is a force multiplier in the life of the believer. What do I mean by that? That knowledge, doctrine, embraced and known has a real effect in the life of the believer. And I'm going to prove this to you if you don't mind me being so bold. Have you ever come across some, some, some element of truth that you never really saw before and it opened up before you in the scripture and there it was now, it was almost a magnet. It was that maybe that carried you through the week and there was a sense in which your experience of grace and peace was multiplied through this new knowledge that you had received. And so Peter is able to say that the experience of the Christian life is multiplied, there's that concept of force multiplying, is multiplied through the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. And where is this knowledge found? It is found, again, not in our mystical experiences. Oh, I would never want to have a non-experiential Christianity. I would never want to have a Christianity that is reduced to a philosophy of life. I would never want to have a Christianity that is reduced to a system of moral ethics. I long for the true, genuine experience of God in Christ. The Spirit of God filling, the Spirit of God moving, the Spirit of God directing. So much, if we can put it this way, uh, walking so circumspectly that we're we're careful not to grieve nor to quench the spirit of God. The reality of experiential Christianity is the beauty of evangelical Christianity. And so that we come to adhere not only to a system of doctrine, we will never never get sloppy in our doctrine. We will affirm the necessity of doctrine. But truth must lead to this experiential knowledge. Well, Peter picks it up again here in verse 3. Notice again what he says here. According as his divine power is given unto us all things that pertain unto life and the godliness through the knowledge of him. Here is this emphasis once again, and again we we, may, we made mention of this in our in our sermon in the second uh, verse. We will have to make mention of it again. Here is Peter using again this word epinosis. Uh, and the idea is that there was a, this. Fullness of knowledge, this this knowledge it has all of its saving content. Now we have to be careful here because sometimes the two words for knowledge, gnosis or epinosis, can be used with no distinguishing uh, feature uh, between them. But there are times when there is a distinguishing point being made. And I believe that as Peter is going to expose false teachers and to expose the scoffers, I think here he is particularly emphasizing the distinctiveness of Christian experience by way of the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. And so that this knowledge is not only theoretical, this knowledge is not only practical, it's deeper than that. It's personal and experiential. The scriptures talk about this kind of knowledge, doesn't it? We see this. We see this in a number, we, we see this in a number of writers. What does Job say? He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. You think, do you think Job got that from, from studying theology? No, may, may Job have studied theology. I, I hope he had the doctrine of immortality and resurrection all down pat. But if that's where it stopped, he would never be able to say in the depth of his... He would say, you know, I've heard, and I think, and I'm hoping. He says, no. He says, I know my Redeemer lives. Paul says the same thing. He talks about this knowledge, this certainty of knowledge, where, uh, where, the, where the Lord Jesus Christ is able to say he says for i know in whom i have believed and i'm persuaded he is able to keep that which i've committed unto him against that day that's the knowledge that's the knowledge that has bruises attached to it that's the knowledge that has tears attached to it that's the knowledge that has years behind it that's the knowledge that rests firm that's the knowledge that the scripture is talking about here through the knowledge of him who called you. And so again, we see that the that the power is divine. We see that the provision is, is comprehensive. But we also see what the effects are. The effects are piety and purity. Now again, this is this is interesting. You know, these opening verses of 2 Peter are kind of interesting because as, 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 as straightforward and almost as, as, as simple as they are, every phrase has to be engaged because it can be taken, It the, the breadth, how can I put it, the expansiveness of the phrase can be difficult to, to, to pinpoint in a particular direction. And what I mean by that is what I've said. Is it referring to the divine power of the Father? Is it referring to the divine power of the Son? In one sense, it, it, it doesn't matter because, again, we're divine power, but I think Peter is making the emphasis on the person of Christ. The the knowledge of him that called you. Is the calling there the calling of the Father? Or is it the calling of Christ? Well, in one sense, the the, the expression is large enough to encompass both. But I think Peter here is referencing the the calling of of Christ. Earlier in the week, I thought it was referencing the calling of the Father. So again, you see how when you interact with these things, you you have to work these things out. Well, it's the same thing when we get to this next phrase now. When when Peter says this, the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Now, the King James says called to glory and virtue. I believe the ESV says called to glory and virtue. If you look in your little note there on the ESV, it'll have an alternate reading, which is called by glory and virtue. The New King James translates it that way. And what's interesting is this, is that the provision, the divine provision, and the comprehensive supply is now working in a particular direction. Now, again, I have to admit as I set both of these before you, I am following the, the the translation of the King James and I believe that that's the sense that Peter has intended here. Although the alternate understanding of it would be he has called us by his glory and virtue. The King James to glory and virtue. And since the King James to glory and virtue, that's why I've approached the passage on our last point as piety and purity okay so you could see how i'm going in that direction because of how i understand the text but i do want to engage your thinking a little bit for this idea of what it would mean if indeed the way to understand this passage of scripture is as the new king james brings it out he has called us by glory and virtue there's a wonderful thought in that as well and what that thought is essentially this That there is in the glory of the gospel and that there is in the glory of our glorious God and in his wonderful person, Jesus Christ, a particular appeal and attraction to his own holiness and beauty. Have you ever been taken up by the thought of the beauty of the holiness of God? Have you ever been drawn to that life of purity that we are called to? Have you ever been called, have you ever been drawn to those moral excellencies that reside in the nature and in the being of God? Peter could very well indeed be saying that we are being called by these moral excellencies. That in contrast to a corrupt world that we live in, we raise our hearts and our minds and we see the glory of a holy and pure God who calls us to himself. I find that appealing, I do. And I hope that the holiness of God is an appealing thing to you. I hope that not only are you in one sense somewhat apprehensive about this holy God with whom we have to do, I also hope you are attracted to that holy God. That in the moral filth that we see, not only around us, but in us, we see a God who calls us unto godliness and, 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 uh, and virtue. So again, this could be what Peter is saying, but, but in all honesty, as appealing as that is, and I don't want you to lose that thought, that may be a, a valid point to make from another passage of scripture, but I did want to introduce that to you here. I do think that, that the King James is, is, at least as I understand the passage, is, is to be preferred here. That he is calling us to uh, godliness and to purity. How does he say it here in the third verse? Um, Through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Now, what is uh, glory and, and virtue here? Well, again, the way I see this is that when we talk about the ideas of piety and purity, that the ideas of piety and purity as a, as a manifestation or as a mark of the Christian life, one of the things that we see that God is doing is that God is calling us not only unto salvation, not only unto piety, God is also calling us the glory. You know, one of the great features of the Christian life is not only that there is a sense in which we can look back and see past sins forgiven, there's a sense in which we can look now and see that there are present sins that are being overcome by the grace of God. But there is coming that day when we will be glorified in the presence of God. We spoke about that last week a little bit again. You remember that, that phrase, you may have heard it for the first time, the beatific vision. When, those who are, when, when the Lord Jesus Christ says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I hope this is a longing of yours. I hope you desire this. I hope you des- desire to see God in whatever way redeemed creatures can. Look upon the God who is invisible, but yet who manifests himself in the outward display of his glory. And then I, I, I'm saying to you that when we see that, what will we see? Who will we see? Well, we will see a reflection of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and so again we are called to this glory, but also the virtue. Now, it's interesting. Virtue is a very uh, a very interesting word, particularly as it is used in, uh, in in the first century. In our day, it's it's not really a uh, a word of any real. Uh, uh, not controversy, but it's, it's a word that we just immediately apply of uh, the highest uh, kind of ethical qualities to. So that when we talk about a virtuous woman, it's kind of interesting. The word virtuous is m- most applied in Scripture. I think the word virtuous, I could be wrong in this if my memory serves me. I think it's found about maybe six, excuse me, vir- virtue or virtuous is found about six times uh, in the Bible. And uh, most often it's applied to women. And again, the, the, the wonder, the beauty, the attractiveness of a virtuous woman. Uh, a beauty that never fades, uh, a, a beauty that increases with age and increases with godliness. Uh, and virtue has that idea of moral excellence. But what's interesting is that in the first century, the word uh, for virtue really, in, in a sense, it had that idea of moral excellence, but it was really associated on a, on a human plane. And it's not uncommon to see a discussion how that virtue as a, as a as a Christian concept, although we use it, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't. Virtue as a moral concept in one sense is a little bit under the reality of godliness and piety. Now again, don't draw, don't invest, you know, draw a wrong conclusion on that because I am going to use the word virtue here by way of moral excellence, but I want you to, well, I want you to see that there is something even more than human virtue. And that, are, and that is Christian graces. Now, Christian graces take on the characteristic of human virtues. The Christian grace of love. The Christian grace of compassion. The Christian grace of mercy. Now, again, it's wonderful to see these things displayed in anybody that you come across, but how much more for the Christian who is able to exert these things under the influencing graces of the Spirit of God. So he's called us to glory. He's called us to virtue. But the other reason why I'm I'm, I'm saying that that the effect of this uh, divine provision is is personal piety is because of that word godliness. Again, notice what the what, what John what, excuse me what Peter says here. He has given us all things that pertain to the life and the godliness. Well, godliness again is this word piety. It's a it's a beautiful word. Piety has to do with everything by way of a right uh, by way of a right exhibition or a right displaying of the graces of God in the soul. So that by way of religious devotion, everything is in line. By way of the expression of Christian graces, everything is in line. And you are called to godliness. You are called to exhibit those characteristics which mirror the person of Christ himself. And so we're called to godliness. But we also have this idea of virtue, which we've just just spoken about. But the other thing I want you to see. Look again at verse 4. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. These Divine provisions that are comprehensive these provisions which have the power of Christ as their source these provisions are all intended that you and I might escape the corruption that is in the world through lust you know last week we didn't emphasize this even though this was in the fourth verse because I wanted to come back to it and visit it today and what we're seeing here as I said before is that everything that God is doing, by way of the divine uh, provision, by way of the comprehensive supply. Everything that he's doing is moving us to piety and purity. And this is a concept that, again, that we must hear in our day. This is a concept that we must stress in our day. That you and I, as individuals, in our houses, in our homes, in our, in our work relations, what are we? Yeah, we're, by the grace of God, we want to be holy. Whatever, whatever mocking that, that might bring. Whatever, uh, you know, whatever strangeness that may, that may make us appear by. we want to be those who have escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. Kind of interesting here, the word corruption that Peter uses in verse four. Uh, he uses it again. Uh, he, uses it, he uses it again uh, later on in the epistle in, uh, in chapter two, verses 19 through 22 when he's speaking about false teachers. Notice what he says here. While they promised Second yes, Peter chapter two, verses 19 through 22, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, the servants of corruption. And what is the Christian? He is the one who, is, who has escaped corruption. He is the one who is seeking to be free from corruption. But what does a false teacher do? He uses the things of the gospel just to advance his own corruption. Again, it's, 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 you can see why there's such a strong condemnation on false teachers in the scripture. Verse 20, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of this world through the knowledge, there's that knowledge again, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them for the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, than after that they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb the dog has returned to his vomit again, and the sow to the, uh, to, that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. What do we see here? That false teachers, what do they love? They love their corruption. But the person who has been affected by the power of God and the salvation, the person who sees in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the word of God, everything sufficient for life and the godliness, that person desires to be free from the corruptions that are in the world through lust. And notice the emphasis there. Not are in the world because of the world itself, but are in the world through lust. The world is a system. The world is a a physical material reality. In one sense, it doesn't have lust. Lust comes from fallen men. Lust comes from the fallen nature. And we who have been corrupted by sin through the sin of Adam, we who 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 have imbibed sin throughout our lives, we are nothing more than a corrupting influence in this world unless we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so what Peter says is this. This this divine provision is all that we might exhibit the Christian life in piety and personal purity. I hope and I pray to God that that appeals to you. I hope the call to holiness is a call that resonates. All the the meaning of tone in that word resonates. No flat note, no sharp note on play. No flat note, no sharp note, but it resonates. We hear the call and we're drawn to it. Oh, that the people of God might live wholly unto God. And you see, that's what's given to us in this passage of scripture. Everything needed for life and godliness. That's God's intention for you. Life here, of course, is spiritual life. Godliness here, as I said before, is that conformity to the character of God. And again, this is your desire, I hope and pray. I hope and pray that as a church, this is our longing. That whatever else we are in this world, we are a people called under the Lord Jesus Christ, living by way of His holy commands, exhibiting personal holiness because of the Spirit of God working within us. Oh, you see, again, this call, this provision, this power that we have. And so when we come to our applications of this passage of Scripture, how can we apply it? Well, I would say to you in three ways. Number one, I would say this, engage your Christian life with confidence. Everything you need, for your living out of the Christian life is given to you through a knowledge of Jesus Christ in the Word of God. Again, given to us in the Word and communicated by the Spirit. Be dependent upon the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and make it real and living and active to you. And so again, engage your Christian life with confidence. And your Christian life involves not only your religious life. Your Christian life involves all of life. Your parenting, your grandparenting, your working, your retirement. All these things, this is part and parcel of what your Christian life is. Engage the Christian life with confidence. There is sufficient grace for every circumstance. There is sufficient grace for for every situation. And so again, engage the Christian life in in confidence. Why? Because the divine power, the divine power of Christ has given you all things, the comprehensive provision for personal piety and purity. Secondly, let your Christian life be based on an experiential knowledge of the word of God. Again, I hope that in my, hopefully my years to come here, I hope long years here, I hope to develop and to walk the congregation through a deepening of understanding of formal Christian theology. I hope to set the categories forth in a way that not only are understandable, but become appealing. I want there to be growth and and the the theoretical knowledge of doctrine, and the practical knowledge of doctrine. But I want most of all there to be a growing in the experiential knowledge of doctrine, the experiential knowledge of the person of Christ. I know in whom I believe. I am persuaded. Oh, I want that to be your testimony. So again, let your Christian life be based on an experiential knowledge of the word of God. And then thirdly this, let your life, let our life, let all of our lives, that our lives be lived to the glory of God, manifesting itself in personal piety and purity. There is a corrupt world out there that has been corrupted by men and women just like ourselves. There is a corrupt, and we hate to say this, but we have to say this, there is a corrupt world out there that has been corrupted by each and every one of us ourselves. But thank God for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God and the salvation. The power of sin, yes. But where is that? What is that compared to the power of God in the gospel? So my Christian friends, all things necessary for life and godliness are yours. All things necessary for life and godliness have divine power behind them. All things necessary for life and godliness will produce piety and purity. May we go forth and be the people of God in this fallen world. And may we bring glory to God, not only by what we say, but how we carry ourselves, how we conduct ourselves, and how we act in this fallen world. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for the provision you have made for us in your word and through the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant, Father, that that provision may find all of its fruition in a conforming of our lives to your glorious son may we see lord god working within us and developing through us this whole aspect of piety and purity to your glory not merely morality father not merely good ethics but piety and purity for your glory grant these things we pray and we ask this in jesus name